Hello, Woodland Hills. Merry Christmas season and all that. Hope you're in the holiday spirit. Ho, ho, ho. It really helped to have those children up here singing, didn't it? Yeah. Just, they're so adorable. Just too cute. Too cute. Well, my name's Greg. I'm a teaching pastor here, and it's really an honor and privilege to worship with you and to get a chance to share God's word with you. Uh, this being the Christmas season and all, we're uh, starting a kind of mini Christmas series. We'll go for three weeks. Uh, and we're entitling this, Do You See What I See? Which uh, is one of my favorite all-time Christmas songs. Anyone else here like that, that song? You know, said the shepherd boy to the mighty king, Do you see what I see? A child, a child shivers in the night, or shivers in the cold, or quivers in the cold, or quivers he's bold. Quivers I'm told. I, I don't know. Something about quivering, but it, it's, I, I just love the harmony of that. The series has nothing to do with that, however. Um, it's, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, gaining the capacity and the importance of gaining the capacity of seeing the world through other people's eyes, especially people who are different from us, which is, we'll see here in a moment, far more important than maybe some of us think. Um, so we'll be looking at uh, different characters in the Christmas story as it's told in Matthew and Luke. And it just so happens that all of the characters involved in the, the Christmas story surrounding the, the birth of Jesus um, are unusual suspects. They're, they're people on, on the margins of society. They're outsiders. Uh, they're folks that others would look down on. They're not uh, part of the dominant culture. Uh, they're not the kind of people that you would expect to be invited to the birth of a king, let alone the king of all kings and the lord of all lords. They're, they're the, the fringe people. And that's not a coincidence that God just couldn't find anyone else. Uh, it, what it reveals is that God is a God who operates in unique and powerful ways on the fringes. Uh, he's a God who loves to and delights in using unexpected people to do unexpected things. Uh, a God who delights in uh, working through folks that are other than us, outside of our familiar and comfortable groups. And so I want to title this message, Following the Box Demolishing God for reasons that I hope will be clear here in a little bit. And I want to read a, a little bit of uh, the story, Christmas stories, that's told by Matthew. And we'll be paying particular attention to these interesting people called the Magi. So this is uh, Matthew chapter 2. It says, In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men, and the word is magos. Everyone say magos. We, we like to learn Greek here, and that's going to be an important word here in a little bit. Wise men from the east, so they really weren't wise men, we'll see here in a moment, uh, came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay homage to him. They think everybody knows this, but no one knows it except for them. So they go, where's the child born? When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. Uh, king Herod was a paranoid freak. Uh, he always thought people were trying to take over the throne and displace him and kill him. He even had his three sons, uh, 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 I think he had three, no, he had five. I don't know. However many sons he had, he had them assassinated because he was sure that they were going to try to uh, kill him and take over the throne. He was a paranoid. So when he hears about this king, he's like, whoa, uh, you know, I got to do something about this. And what often happened when Herod got paranoid is he'd go out and kill a lot of people as happened in the Christmas story shortly after this episode we're reading here. And so if Herod's afraid, everybody's afraid because heads are going to roll. So he says, all Jerusalem was afraid with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of his people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, 
For so it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, this is out of Micah chapter 5, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is the shepherd to shepherd my people Israel. This prophecy was given uh, 800 years before Jesus was born. The prophet specifies uh, the, where this Messiah will be born 800 years from now. And it's, what's interesting is that Bethlehem was a, was a, a little tiny little tiny little village in the middle of nowhere. Uh, nothing significant about it, but that's where the Messiah would be born. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. When he, then he sent him to, to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. Liar. And when they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. Uh, and on entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. And then opening their treasure chest, they offered him uh, gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Abba Father, anoint this message. Uh, give it your authority to do what only your word can do, and that's change us and shape us. Uh, alter our character, alter our life, and bring it more in line with the kingdom. And give us hearts. Holy Spirit, be working to give us receptive hearts uh, that we don't put up walls of resistance, but we hear your word and receive it. Shape us. Transform us. In the image of Jesus Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said... Amen. Amen. Okay, so the NRSV, which is the version we just read, and the version I, I, that's my, I like the best, uh, it translates Magos as wise men. It says that the wise men show up. Most of the English translations uh, use wise men uh, in, in the text. But I'm thinking that if Matthew wanted to say wise men, we would have found the word wise in the original Greek, and we would have found the word men in the original Greek, but there is no wise or there is no men in the original Greek. The Greek has... Magos. Everyone say magos. magos. Yeah, that's the word you learned. And magos translates as magi. Um, and magi, that, that word is related to the word magic or magician. Hmm. What do you think about that? In that special. And see, it's because the magi were originally magicians. They, they were practiced in, in all the occultic arts, divination, and things like that. But by the time uh, the Jesus rolls on the scene in this era, it's primarily associated with astrology. And it just so happens that Persia was the center of astrology, the Mecca, the capital of astrology. They were the experts in And so these were not just wise men, folks. These were pagan astrologers from Persia. Uh, and on top of that, uh, the dominant religion in Persia was Zoroastrianism. Uh, Zoroastrianism was an ancient religion that believed in two gods. Uh, one was good and one was evil, and they were forever fighting. So these wise men from the east were actually uh, pagan astrologers who were Zoroastrians. They believed in two gods. There you go. Uh, they would have been uh, part of royalty they, and, and wealthy because uh, whenever kings or other dignitaries wanted to make important decisions, they would consult these astrologers and say, what do the stars say? And, and that would factor into their, their, their decision making. 
So these wise men are Zoroastrian pagan astrologers from the east. Now, I don't know for sure, but it might be the case that one of the factors that lead English translations to put in wise men rather than pagan astrologers is because some Christians might get offended at the idea that God would bypass all the righteous people of Israel, go 1,200 miles over there to Persia, and call out these pagan astrologers. I don't know, I'm just thinking, maybe... Some Christians might be bothered by that. And you can understand why. Because the Bible itself, several times, in no uncertain terms, forbids engaging in astrology or any kind of divination. And probably some folks need to hear that. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's taboo. Um, and so folks might legitimately wonder, why would God then go over and call up these sinners, these, these, these folks who spend their entire life making money on a practice that the Bible forbids, and who think that there's two gods and who aren't even Jewish, why would God invite them to be a witness to the birth of the Messiah King? Uh, it's much easier to just say that they were wise men. Uh, but look, at that's a good question, but sorry, that's what God did. That's what's in the text. Uh, that's who God chose to invite to be at this, uh, to bear witness to the birth of the Messiah King. And I have always found that when you find stuff that's surprising and puzzling and offensive in the Bible, it's important that we don't try to tidy it up and make it conform to our expectations and, and, and sanitize it. Rather, in all of its weirdness and puzzledness and, and maybe offensiveness, bite into it. Uh, dig down, because sometimes you'll find that the best, the best revelations are found in that difficult stuff. Um, and I think this, this passage, this narrative, is a, is a case in point. Um, these were pagan astrologers. Now, we, we don't know, it's not clear, how these pagan Zoroastrian astrologers knew about the birth of the king over there towards Jerusalem. Um, it's, it's not clear why they felt it was important enough for them to go over and make the 1,200-mile journey uh, to visit this, this newborn king. Um, there's a lot of unknowns in this. One thing is certain, though, is that these pagan astrologers wouldn't have had a clue, really, as to who Jesus was. In their view, he would have just been a newborn king. They would not have known that this child was God incarnate, God infused with inhumanity. And they wouldn't have known that he's not just a king, he's the king of all kings and the lord of all lords and the savior of the world. That would have been totally outside of the orbit of their awareness. Uh, but despite the fact that they don't know the true identity of Christ, and despite the fact that they don't know he's the Savior, despite the fact that they make their living engaging in an activity that the Bible forbids, despite the fact that they believe in two gods, God invited them to bear witness to the, the birth of the, 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 the King Messiah, Jesus. And it's not quite what you would expect. Uh, there's an irony that's, that's here in the text uh, that's important to notice. So Herod, he's freaking out because he heard that there's a newborn king and, and he doesn't want any competition. So he calls the scribes and Pharisees to you know, plot his assassination. Um, the scribes and, and, and the, the high priest, they assume that they are the quintessential insiders on the things of God. They know God and they know God's ways. Okay, so they're the experts. And they know, because they know scripture, they know where the Messiah is to be born. But they don't know that he's been born. Well, the Magi aren't going to know that much about the Old Testament and the Scripture and the prophecy. But they might have known that. But, but uh, they, 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 they know that the Christ child has been born, but they're, they're not sure where. That's why they're asking, where, where is he? They, they just follow the star and, and led him in this general direction. So the scribes know where, but not that. And the, the Magi know that, but not where. But they tell the scribes that he's been born. They tell them that. 
see, these scribes um, and the, these high priests, they don't even consider the possibility that the Magi might be right. The reason is because these scribes, and fair, these scribes and high priests, they think they're the insiders. They got the goods on God. And who are, why these pagan, dualistic people believe in two gods, they got nothing to say to us. They're not Jewish. They don't believe right. They've got nothing to teach us. Uh, and so they just ignore that. Well, the likes of you are going to teach us. We're, we're, we're the insiders. We're the experts. Uh, and, and so what happens is that the Messiah is born. The Messiah whom Israel's been looking to for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, longing for. The Messiah is born, and he's right under their noses. You know, Bethlehem's just a stone's throw from Jerusalem, right under the noses, and yet the scribes miss it. And why do the scribes miss it? It's because of their prejudicial, self-serving assumptions that they have the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And they're not going to learn from any pagan who's involved in saving their life, getting rich off of, off of uh, an activity that the Bible forbids. You've got nothing to teach us. And as a result, these scribes and these high priests miss the most momentous God event in history. All because they're unwilling to listen to what these pagan astrologers uh, might have to teach them. What this says to us, folks, is, is that, that if, if we're living in, in a, a nice little box, these, these scribes and, and high priests, they, they think they've got God in a nice little tiny box. They know it all. God lives in our box with our assumptions and our expectations. If God's going to invite anyone to the birth of Messiah, it's going to be us. So they assume, and they were wrong. It teaches us that if we're living inside of a nice little tidy box where we think we got God all, all, all down, we might just miss some momentous stuff that God is up to. Because the truth is, if we learn anything, if we learn anything from God as he's revealed in Jesus Christ, it's that God don't fit into no one's box. If we learn anything from, from, from the God who's revealed in Jesus Christ, it's that God seems to have, take special pleasure in blowing up people's boxes. <laughs> have you noticed that? Jesus reveals a box-demolishing God. Amen? This is why when, when Jesus comes into the world, uh, he, he doesn't fit the profile of what a Messiah is supposed to be. He's constantly doing the opposite of what people expect him to do. So everyone at the time assumes that when the sinless Messiah comes into the world, the all-holy Messiah comes into the world, he's going to hang out with holy people, right? Duh. Hey, righteous people. But Jesus says, sorry, folks, God doesn't live in that box. And, G and Jesus, God incarnate, the Messiah, he tends to hang out with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and others who are the most judged sinners of his day. Not what you would have thunk. And, and then everyone assumes at this time that, that the Messiah, he, he, when he comes in, he's going to be a king. And kings always hang out with other kings and royalty and people of wealth and people of power. But Jesus says, sorry, God doesn't live in that box. And he instead tends to spend most of his time with the low society folks, with the, the, the marginal folks, the oppressed folks, the lame folks, the broken folks, the judged folks, people that, that, that are disrespected by folks in the dominant culture. And, and all of the Jews of, of, of this time assume that at the very least, you know, the Messiah is going to be Jewish, so of course he's going to favor the Jews who are God's chosen people over those Gentiles who are far from God, or so they, they assume. But Jesus says, sorry, sorry, God doesn't live in that box. And, and so he comes in here and he holds up the faith of a Samaritan as being greater than anyone's faith in, in Israel. And uh, Jews hated Roman centurions. And then he holds up a uh, Samaritan 
And Jews despise Samaritans, but he holds up a Samaritan as being a better neighbor than even your religious leaders. And he goes out of his way to, to have a dialogue with this Samaritan woman who had been married five times, but he respects her and, and sends her away with joy. Uh, he reveals a God who just doesn't fit into people's boxes. And everyone at this time assumes that the Jews are the insiders and the Romans and the, and the Persians and the Babylonians, they're all, they're all outsiders. The Canaanites, they're all outsiders. If you're not Jewish, you're an outsider. But when Jesus comes into this world, he says, sorry, uh, God doesn't live in that box. Don't mean to upset you, but it's going to upset you. you got, you're trying to put God in a box. Because what Jesus does with his teachings and with his examples as, is that he, he, he inaugurates a kingdom that turns everything upside down, that breaks apart all the boxes. He inaugurates a kingdom where all the folks who assume that they are insiders end up on the outside. And all those who everyone judged as being outsiders end up on the inside. And he inaugurates a kingdom where those who are sure that they're first end up being last, and those who everyone thought were going to be last end up being first. Jesus reveals a God who just blows our boxes apart. He reveals a box-demolishing God. And see, if we accept that, if we'll embrace that, then we won't be surprised that God was willing to bypass all the supposed, holy, dignified, respectable folks of Israel, go 1,200 miles over to Persia, and invites some pagan astrologers who believe in two gods to come and bear witness to uh, the Christ child. It kind of goes through the pattern. Uh, if you're surprised at what God's doing, you're probably following the right God. Because uh, he just, he's a God who loves to work in unexpected ways among people that you wouldn't expect. People that are, are, are marginal to the dominant culture and people that are outside of your own experience. Look for God in those odd places. What it means for us, folks, is that, that, that we might miss God, just like the, the scribes did, if, if, unless we're willing to get outside of our boxes and, and allow God to challenge some of our assumptions and some of our expectations. We're called to follow a box-demolishing God, and you cannot do that if you're committed to staying in the safety and security of all your cultural assumptions and all your the, the, you know, homogenous uh, environment, uh, you can't do that unless you're willing to let your box be smashed. See, if we arrogantly dismiss those Zoroastrian uh, astrologers because they believe the wrong thing, they don't know God, they've got nothing to teach us, they make a living off an activity the Bible forbids. If, if for that reason we dismiss them, or if, if we just say, you know what, they're weird, uh, I'm not really comfortable around them. Uh, well. We might miss a momentous thing that God's doing right under our noses just like the scribes did. Uh, if, if we're going to miss some momentous stuff that God wants to show us and, and things he wants to do in us. If, if we're sitting there in the, and, and relaxing in the homogeny of all the folks who look just like us, have the same skin color, if, if we're in a homogenous box of folks who share all of our theological convictions and, and agree with us in our lifestyle and, and share our cultural assumptions and expectations, God might be doing momentous stuff all around us, but we won't see it. We'll miss opportunities to grow and be enriched and be expanded and be deepened and be challenged if we're sitting on our own little comfortable homogenous boxes. If we're, gonna, if we're following the God-demolishing or the, the God-demolishing box, never follow a God-demolishing box. Those are bad boxes. But we do want to follow the box-demolishing God. And see, if we're following the box-demolishing God, it means then that we've got to be open to and even seek and embrace and, and learn from folks that don't share our skin color, don't share our lifestyle, maybe don't agree with our theological convictions, don't share all of our cultural assumptions and expectations. Amen? 
we're called, following that God, is, is, is to do that is, is, is to seek out and embrace and, and learn from folks who are different from you, who are at the margins of society and or outside of the sphere of your comfortable experience. Uh, it, it's, I'll put it like this. I'll put it as blunt as possible because I'm gifted at that. Following Jesus who reveals the, 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 the box-demolishing God, it means that being comfortable living in a homogenous environment where you feel safe and secure is not a viable option for kingdom people, not for believers and not for churches. And it will vary from area to area, some are more diverse than others, of course, but insofar as it's possible, we've got to be seeking to relate to folks that are not like us. It means this, to get it really blunt, that homogeny is inherently contra, contrary to the kingdom and diversity is inherently in line with the kingdom. Amen? Which means that mixing it up with people that are not like us is a non-negotiable kingdom value. Amen? Amen. Now, I, I, I can hear someone thinking right now. I have telepathy. I, I hear some thoughts out there. Or maybe they're on the podcast. Maybe no one in the auditorium, but podcast maybe. And actually, I, I met a person uh, two, two, two or three months ago at the gym who actually said this to me. Um, he was explaining why he doesn't come to Willow Hills Church because I was pressing him on the topic. And, uh, uh, well, he said he podcasts, but he's just, he doesn't come to the church. And I asked why. I thought maybe the music too loud or something. But uh, he hemmed and hawed a lot. And then finally he said, well, I'm just not comfortable. Um, and I, I, someone may be thinking this here or on podcast. Uh, in fact, I'll say hi to the guy who, who I, I, remember me? The gym? All right. Listen up here. Although he already heard this sermon. I gave it to him right there in the gym. Yeah, I, I told him, I'm fine. Well, you're not coming to church, you know, for whatever. Find a different church if you're called there. But I'm not fine with the reason you just gave. Okay, so, so you think, I'm not comfortable. I'm just, you know, I'm not a racist, but I'm just not comfortable. Because those, those people, fill in the blank, those people, they talk funny. I can't really understand them. And, and they talk too fast. And they stand too close to you when they talk. I, that just bugs me. And, and their mannerisms and behaviors, and they're just different. It's just odd. And, and I don't know what to do. I kind of don't know how to act there. And, and so I'm just not comfortable. I'm just not comfortable. I'm not comfortable. Um, see, what that person just did, or if this is you thinking this, what you just did was you just outlined the parameters of your box. I'm telling you, if you don't get out of that box, you're in a prison. You don't even know it. But you, th th that's the parameters of your box. My little safe, secure space. Um, and you'll know that you're beginning to get out of the box. Your pinky is starting to exit the box the minute you start to feel a little uncomfortable and start to feel, you know, like disoriented. You're not sure what to do. Uh, this is a place maybe where you haven't been before. Uh, that means that that's, your, your pinky is getting out the door. Good for you. But now you have a very important decision to make. And, and it really is nothing short of this. Uh, you've got to decide uh, who or what's going to be Lord of your life. Um, you can either make Jesus, who reveals the box-demolishing God, and make him Lord of your life, or you can make your comfort and convenience and preferences Lord of your life. But you cannot do both. You cannot serve two masters. And if, to, if following Jesus means anything, it means we choose him over our comfort. We choose him over our preferences. We choose him over our culture. We choose him over our expectations. We choose him over our box. Amen? That's what it means to enthrone him as Lord. He calls us places where maybe our own fallen nature wouldn't want to go. God works in unique and distinctive and beautiful ways in the space that is created when we interact with people that are different from us. 
Maybe make us feel a little uncomfortable. Maybe, maybe, maybe they think differently than us and believe differently than us. God works in that space, but we only give God a chance to work in that space if we're getting out of our box, creating that space. And you'll find, invariably, you'll find that if you press through whatever discomfort you have, you will be blessed and you will grow and you'll sometimes see God do momentous things you otherwise wouldn't see. And, and, and you'll find that, that it, it broadens you, it stretches you, it allows you to see more of the world because you're seeing through other people's eyes, not just through the myopia of your own cultural box. You'll find you're just blessed in ways you never anticipated. If you're willing to get out of your comfort zone and build relationships, People different than you. I want to introduce you to a lady who um, is, does live at the margins of the dominant culture in America here uh, and lived outside of the sphere of my experience up until 13 years ago. Some of you know her. Uh, her name's Toke Olatoye. Uh, yeah, you know Toke. Yeah, she's... Uh, all those hands claps for people who've been blessed by her. Um, here's the thing. Toke, uh, her husband died in Nigeria 14 years ago, suddenly. And she, she and her family came under some persecution uh, to the point where she had to flee. Her and her three kids ha came to America. And for four or five months, they lived in homeless shelters here. Um, and so I want to introduce her to you by showing you just a little bit of an interview that I did with Toke this week. And then I'll talk about it. day shelter uh, that I was in with my, I mean, my, with my children happened to be a place anyone will rather imagine than experience. Uh, you can imagine with three kids. Over there, there's nothing around for them to play with. You just, it's just like sitting in one spot the whole day and eat and then uh, be ready to be transported to the church where you sleep uh, in the gym. Nothing recreational, no enrichment, no television. So just sitting down and they're very crowded too. And then they just get you these uh, little lockers for you to put your stuff in. All day long, I just sit down there with my children and keeping watch over them and trusting God uh, for a way out. We were at the day shelter, so we missed the bus that was to, supposed to bring us to the first service. Then we went back to the shelter, but God gave me the grace. No, stand up, you need to stand up. This is the day. So we went out in the cold to take another bus to attend the second service. And lo and behold, that was the day God delivered my family from the shelter. But they would try to uh, block that. When I came here, I had to get my foot into the uh, system, the education system, in order to be able to uh, familiarize myself with the system before getting the license. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes when I went into the schools, the first assumption even uh, at the office is, oh, a parrot is gone today. So that means because of my color, I should be a parrot. I should not be a teacher. A parrot professional is considered a, te uh, a teacher's assistant. 
So it's assumed that I'm a paraprofessional and not a teacher. And that could be very, uh, very devastating for somebody like me who taught. I, I got my degree in chemistry, and I taught in Nigeria for 20 years before coming. Yes. So to be told that I'm a paraprofessional, to assume that I'm a paraprofessional and then I can't be a teacher, I think that was very disturbing for many, for many years. America being a developed country compared to a developing country, America has a lot, mm -hmm. a lot of opportunities. So that might explain why people in the habit of wanting to get this, wanting, because there are so many things that are appealing, that are attractive. Uh, you look at the beautiful, uh, beautiful cars. So I think uh, the, the, main, the main difference has to do with the development. The negative consequence of that is uh, where we have limited of those in Nigeria, it leaves room for people to build relationship with others rather than build a relationship with those materials around them. My family story is not there's no way we can complete it without mentioning brothers and sisters here. Uh, God raised up people, uh, putting their heart, uh, generosity to pour their heart into the ministry to help us. People kept building relationships with us, getting to know us, organizing parties, getting to know us, getting us to know other people. And then they were taking turns, taking us to groceries, taking turns, taking us to uh, doctor's appointment. There's no way we could be who we are today without the grace of God who connected my family to Wolahi Church. And I thank God with that support, they supported us emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually, financially, intellectually. I can't tell them enough. So I thank God for blessing all of you's efforts, for showing up, for proving himself. Because those children who were little then, to God be the glory today, to the glory of God. My son is a medical doctor. My older daughter has masters. And my youngest has her first degree. So I really thank God. I give God all the glory. God is truly the husband of the widow. He's truly the father of the fatherless. And when he says yes, nobody can say no. Amen. 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 Uh, I get choked up every time I hear the story. You know, she just notes how in Nigeria, because they have less things, they have more space for relationships with people. And over here, because we have so many things, we have less space for relationship with people. We tend to have a lot of relationships with things. And, and, and since we swim in this water, we maybe wouldn't notice that until you come and interact with and get related to a person who is not from this fishbowl. And they can notice things that you maybe didn't notice. I, 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 I remember the first time I ever met Toke. Um, and, and she refers to it a little bit. It was, a, it was in January, and it was like 20 below zero. It was a frigid, frigid day. And her, her and her three kids had taken two, at least two buses to get here uh, to church. And um, after the service, she came up and, and was explaining the, the plight that she was in. 
but she was very passionate, and I was not yet acclimated to her accent, so I had the hardest time following her. I was like, could you slow down a little bit? And, and it took a while, but I finally got the gist of what she was saying, but I didn't have a clue what I could do about it. Uh, we went out for lunch, and then uh, after that, I drove to back to the shelter, and I think I'm sure some, some of us here have been to that shelter. Uh, it's a little room. It was just a little room with nothing but a table and a couch on it, and there was a drunk person snoring on the couch. Um, and, and people were coming in and out all the time, and uh, very different characters doing, saying very different things. But there's nothing else in this room. There's no magazines, there's no televisions, there's no books, no, no games, no anything. All you can do is sit. All you can do is sit. And so we sat there for some time, and, and I just got more information about the, the, their plight and where, where they're at. Um, it broke my heart to see them having to live in this condition. And they just wait all day until the 5 o'clock bus comes, and they get on this bus and then go to a gym where they're going to sleep with a dozen or so other uh, strangers. Um, when I left that shelter that afternoon, um, it was just before they got on their bus, but God talked to me in a way that, that I, I've never, I had never heard before and have never heard since. Uh, it was really distinctive. It was... It was strong, and it was unambiguous. I, mean, I rarely get clarity like this. But the word was, this is the last night. My children are going to sleep in those conditions. Find them a home by tomorrow. <laughs> it was like, oh, my. it had gravity to it. It was, it was a, kind of, it was a sobering word. And I had no idea what I was going to do. I, I, I just prayed and started making random phone calls. Uh, and it was hitting brick walls, hitting doors. Nothing was opening up. All the rest of that Sunday into the evening and then all through Monday, nothing was opening up. And um, then at, at quarter to five, just before they're supposed to get on the bus to go to the gym, uh, I get a call from a person and this apartment opened up that was so perfect. It was beyond anything I would have imagined they would be able to get. Uh, and it just opened up. And so I immediately called down to the shelter and said, don't let them get on the, the, that bus. Uh, tell them, uh, and they were just getting on the bus. Uh, man, <laughs> my head was on the chopping block. Don't get on that bus. You got to get into a home by tonight or I'm dead. It, it, it's, <laughs> that's always what it seemed like. And, and, and uh, you know, I picked them up and um, the 30 minute ride to this apartment was just, the car was just filled with rejoicing and singing and praising, and it was, it, was, it was just beautiful. The thing was, I didn't have a clue how we're going to pay for this, uh, how to pay for the apartment, and, and how to uh, you know, pay for clothing, and, and what, what if doctors they need to get involved in this, and all the needs that you need to live on, I don't have a clue how we're going to pay for this. I just knew that this had to happen. But the beautiful thing, as Toki testified, was that I didn't have to make that happen. Um, uh, people just came out of the woodwork here at Wilderness Church and just started supporting them and introducing them to others and, and, and they, they started driving them places and taking care of the groceries and taking care of the clothing and all the other things. And it was so beautiful to see this community come around them. It, it was absolutely awesome. And you know, just the, the privilege of being part of that, seeing God work in that, uh, has been one of the greatest blessings of my life. Just... I, it's an honor to be, to be part of that. And I've known this family now for 13 years and have interacted with them for 13 years. And I've just got to say, it's been one long blessing. 
And it's grown me in ways that I otherwise would not have been grown. Uh, for one thing, Toke, and she'd hate if I, I don't know if she's here or not, but she'd be, she's, she's really humble and hates any kind of attention. That's why she's always saying glory to God. Uh, so glory to God. But I want to tell you this. I've never met a person who walks with such confidence in God and, and reliance on God. It's, just, it's, just, it's breathtaking. And, and being around them and engaging with them, it has exposed my lack of reliance on God. Uh, I, I never realized how self-sufficient I tend to be. Um, I, I never realized that until I came to a person who's utterly not self-sufficient. And that's one of the blessings. That's one of the blessings I've worked uh, on trying to become more reliant on God. But part of what's going on here is that it's much easier to be self-sufficient when you're part of the dominant culture than when you're not. You know, when you're on the outside of things, you, you, you really got to rely on God. Give us a day our daily bread really means something if you don't have any, many, any money for bread. Um, and especially if you're facing prejudice, as, as Toke has done. Uh, one of the things that's just blessed me and inspired me uh, and informed me is, is seeing her confront obstacles, but that trust in God and reliance on God has just got her through, and it's guarded her heart from any kind of anger or bitterness about things. Uh, you know, she has got a master's degree in chemistry, and she taught for 20 years in Nigeria, and she was even part of the, the, the Department of Education over all Nigeria. So if anyone's qualified to teach, it'd be Toke, and she's super smart. Um, and yet she comes into these schools as she's trying to work her way into the school system, and over and over again it would happen that a teacher or even an administrator would assume that she's simply a teacher's aide, not, not the teacher herself, because she's Nigerian. Uh, it, it, and seeing her confront that, but yet refuse to, to refuse to ever not love people and to keep on pressing on, and the strength that she had relying on God, which is so inspiring. And it helps me, as a person, I don't have any stigmas on my color, and no stigmas on my nationality, no stigmas on my speech patterns, no stigma on my dress. Uh, you know, so it, it, it's important for me to see this slice of the world here in Minnesota that I otherwise maybe wouldn't have known about, the, the prejudice that there. And it's not that people are intentionally racist, it's their cultural assumptions. They just assume you belong in this category. And I need to always be reminded of that, because I don't live in that world. But it expands me when I can see the world through Toke's eyes. And she's blessed us in so many other ways as well. I'll say this, this lady prays for me and my family every single day. Amen. Every single day. And, and I, I, only in heaven will I ever have a clue as to how much trouble I avoided and how many blessings I've received because of that. You know, it's just, sometimes she'll call me up and, and pray for me on the phone. Um, uh, she just dives right in. She goes, hello, Pastor Boyd. I pray the blood of Jesus over you and over your family. And she just goes on. You know, she, when Toki prays, she really prays. I mean, she prays. Some of you have received prayer from her at, at uh, the altar up here after service. Know what I'm talking about. She prays. Um, and, and, and it's powerful. But this also raises a point, it illustrates our need to get out of our boxes. Because here's the thing, uh, the way that, I, I just thank God for, we, we've got a number of Nigerian families here in, at Woodland Hills Church, uh, and, and other folks that come from Africa or African descent, and sometimes, the, these are the most praying people I've ever met, and the most fervent prayers I've ever met. Uh, it, it's the, and I just want to say to you folks, you are such a blessing to us. It's such a blessing to us. It's such, it, it's such a blessing. But the thing is, is that the way that Nigerians and other folks from Africa pray is not necessarily the way that we Americans, especially we white Americans, tend to pray. We white Americans, when we pray, it tends to be rather quiet uh, and even somber. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank thee for thy bounty. Uh, <laughs> 
I wouldn't describe the way Nigerians pray as quiet and somber. Uh, Toki's not quiet and somber. Uh, they, when they pray, they, they, they get fervent, they get passionate, uh, they, a cadence develops, uh, and they'll sometimes use phrases that, that we're not, that we Western people, especially Western white people aren't familiar with. Uh, you know, we plead the blood, we cover with the blood, there's a lot of blood, uh, and, and it, it, it gets passionate and loud, especially when they're praying together. You know, they, sometimes they've had prayer meetings here on Wednesday nights, and been to a couple, and the first time I, 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 I came to that, I, I heard it down the hall, and I thought people were fighting. Because they're like, Jesus, Jesus, come, come. It's just like, boom. I can tell, okay, this is not a white Western uh, prayer meeting. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, the thing is, is, if you've never experienced that before, it can strike you as strange. And, and, and um, whatever is strange to us can make us feel uncomfortable. But it's like with any other cultural difference. See, if, if something that's strange to you and makes you feel uncomfortable, if you give into that, and back out of that and want to stay away from that, you could be forfeiting something momentous that God wants to do in your life. Amen. And you could be closing the door on a great opportunity. If you can just set that discomfort aside for a little bit, because it will go away. You get used to stuff. It will go away, I promise you. But uh, set that aside, uh, put up with it for a little bit, uh, and just accept this for what it is. And, and just embrace it. Uh, you just might find that that strange way of praying has got a passion and an authenticity and a beauty to it that maybe your own prayer life lacks. You just might find that this strange way of praying taps into the power of the Spirit and the reality of the Spirit in a way that maybe you've never experienced. You just might find that these beautiful people have something to teach you about the power of prayer. In fact, I'm convinced that most white Western Christians have a lot to learn about the power of prayer from Nigerians and other folks from Africa. But it only happens if we're willing to press through our own comfort zone and, and, and experience something different and enter into that. The bottom line is that God works in unique and beautiful and powerful ways in the folks that are on the margins and the folks that are outside of, of our familiar groups, uh, the folks that, that, that are not like us. So we've got to look for the, the box-demolishing God in those areas and be intentional about it. To follow the box-demolishing God means we've got to seek out and embrace and learn from the folks that are, that are outside of our immediate circle, folks that are different from us, folks that maybe strike us as strange. That's where we've got to look for God. We can never assume, whoever you are, you can never assume that you're an insider and have nothing to learn from outsiders. We have to have the opposite attitude. That, that, that Remember, the kingdom isn't us without them. There are no insiders outsiders. And God can use people that your presuppositions and cultural assumptions and expectations would never dream of if we'll be open to that. Be open to that. And you'll find that, that by having these relationships, it challenges you, it expands you, uh, it changes the way you see things because now you begin to see a bigger world because you're seeing it not just from your own culturally myopic eyes, but through the eyes of others. Do you see what I see? You learn to see what they see. And, 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 and it, God uses that to expand us and to grow us in the kingdom people. So I encourage us. See, if we dismiss those pagan Zoroastrian astrologers, because they believe the wrong things, and they look different from us, and, and they, they behave different from us, and they engage in practices that the Bible forbids, and so they're too sinful for us, and they certainly don't have anything to teach us. If, if, if we do what the scribes did, then we just might miss something momentous that God is doing right under our noses. But our prejudicial judgments keep us from seeing it and participating in it. We'll only have the, have the, participate in what God is doing 
and, and grow from that and be changed if we're willing to get out of our box. So I encourage you, if you're American, go out of your way to try to build relationships with folks that aren't American. Uh, immigrants, uh, other folks that, that this is not their native country, you will be blessed by it. And, and if you're white, I encourage you to go out of your way and build relationships with people that aren't white and vice versa. Uh, you'll, be, you'll be blessed by that. Um, if you're, if you're well-to-do, if, if you've got wealth, I strongly encourage you to find ways of, of building relationships with people that don't have wealth and that are poor. Um, whatever it takes, because that will grow you, that will expand you, that will challenge you, that will change your heart. And, and you desperately need that. We desperately need that. If you're straight, I encourage you to build relationships with people that aren't straight, that are gay or transgender. Uh, enter into that, th that world. It will stretch you. It will challenge you. It will change your heart. You'll see the world in a different way. And if you're a believer, I encourage you, build relationships with folks that aren't believers. Amen. We need relationships with people that aren't believers. Out and out pagans, we need relationships with the Zoroastrian astrologers. And not just to evangelize them. I guess it's a one, because uh, that presupposes that you're in the know and they're not. Well, maybe it's opposite. Yeah, you know, if, yeah, you've got, you know truth, you know Jesus, all that. That's, keep that, but that doesn't mean that they don't have anything to teach you. Uh, God delights in using those folks to lead us into places and expand us and change our, 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 our view of the world and mature us and, and, and find God doing momentous things there that we otherwise wouldn't have known about. And they, they don't know it. The, the, the astrologers didn't know all that was going on there. They were ignorant, but God used them. And they, they got to go places that, that uh, the insiders didn't go. You'll go places that, that you otherwise wouldn't go if you're building relationships with people that are radically different from yourself. So I want to end with this. Just close your eyes for a moment. And, and I want to ask the Spirit here to bring to our awareness. Uh, maybe, maybe there's some pe people already planted in your life that are different from you. And, and I'm asking the Holy Spirit right now to bring to our awareness somebody that we're to, to seek, uh, to, to relate to, for no other reason than that we want to relate to them and to see how God shows up. And maybe you have already a very rich, diverse uh, uh, repertoire of friends, and that's beautiful. But there's always more to learn. So ask the Spirit to, say, uh, to, uh, to show you what more can you learn. Uh, uh, what would you like to do with these relationships? Um, maybe they could go deeper. How can you learn from this? And finally, I would like us, if this is your heart, you want to follow the box demolishing God, Will you commit to pursuing this? Our default will always be back to our nice, safe, secure, homogenous boxes. We've got to blow apart that default and, and, and get out of our boxes. So will you commit to following this unexpected God? Uh, follow him to the margins. Follow him outside the safe places. And see what he's going to do. Because you will be blessed. If that's your heart, just commit to it. Lord, I will pursue this. By the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit, I will pursue this. Because we want you, Lord Jesus, who reveals the box-demolishing God, we want you to be Lord of our life, not our comfort zone, not our security, not our preferences, not our safety. If that is your heart, say amen. amen. All right, would you stand up? Uh, I'd like to call the, usher, or the prayer teams to come forward here. And if you're here this morning and have uh, uh, 
have any that could, could use prayer, I'm telling you, there's power in this prayer. I encourage you to come forward and receive that prayer. Also, if you're here this morning and you're not a committed follower of Jesus, I encourage you to consider becoming one. And if you come up here and talk to these folks, they'd love to explain to you what's involved in that. Folks, God bless you. Go out. Get out of your boxes. And let's see what God will do. Amen. God bless.